RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. Full crew today, with me as usual, is Brian. Hello. And Mike. Hello. So, guys, today we're talking about the Fortress of the Iron Duke, which is the dungeon crawl that we ran just last week. Gosh, was that last week? And basic fantasy, it'd be FRPG, the basic fantasy role-playing game. So this is an adventure by Chris Gonerman. Um, we'll put the link to the adventure in the show notes. It's available, like all of BFRPG, completely for free. And actually, I'm going to go off script here, off the show notes, and briefly talk about there are a lot of OSRs, old-school role-playing retro clones out there. The basic fantasy RPG is my favorite D20 um, open-source retro clone for, for two reasons. One, it's completely free to download all the PDFs, uh, basicfantasy.org. Two, there's a really lively community on the forums at basicfantasy.org. Um, it's being actively worked on, active material you know, being developed for free. Uh, it's an awesome game to get involved with for that reason. Some parts are a little clunky. It still requires, you know, D100 rolls for some skill checks. But overall, I really like the system, and you cannot beat the price. So Fortress of the Iron Duke is a, a dungeon crawl. It's a straight out of the book, you know, two-level, lots of rooms, like 50 or 60 rooms dungeon crawl. I really wanted to, to run a dungeon crawl as a change of pace. So let's go ahead and do numeric ratings, and I'm going to rate it an 8. This was an awesome change of pace with really fast combat and, and decently tactical play, um, short of actually having a grit. So I had a great time the other week. Mike, how about you? I uh, I think I'm going to rate it once for, you know, kind of kind of rating itself as it exists, right? So kind of doing that Siskel and Ebert thing of if I'm looking for an example of the of the genre of game we're in, right? So so grading it for that genre that it's a dungeon crawl, fast-paced action, I'm going to give it a nine. Um, and I'm not doing the second rating to say I didn't have a good time because I didn't. I, I mean, I did have a good time. I'm not saying that. But I think for our overall game experience, I'm probably going to give this a six. Interesting. Talk more. You talked about the eight. Talk a little more about the six. Um, so that's more of just, you know, comparing it to the last four or five sessions we've had. Right. So when I compare it to World of Dungeons or I compare it to Pathfinder, where we've had a little more immersive gameplay, a little more uh, character driven story. This is basically the opposite of that. So if I try to rate it along all the other games, it definitely rates a little lower. So for you, this is almost like picking up an NES and playing Dragon Warrior. You know, it's a great game for what it is, but compared to, you know, more immersive, more narrative experiences, you can't help but see it as limited. You know, I, I don't even know if I'd go as far as the Dragon Warrior analogy, right? Because because in the Dragon Warrior and the NES, you at least assume the character. You you have a little tiny mini world you interact. This was. This was very much mechanics driven, very much just 
A to B to C, check, 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 check. It it almost felt like it was a, a, a mechanics exercise or almost like a combat simulation more than uh, more than anything else. Interesting. So I'm almost like in a Battlefield 2 situation, sort of a quick combat. Like there's no story, there's no narrative, there's no meat. It's just, hey, jump in and see if you can if you can survive this scenario. Yeah. Okay. Which again, in the context of itself, in that that capture of this solo game, I'm rating this game alone in itself a nine. No, yeah, and that's fair. I, I, I dig the criticism, man. All right, Brian, how about you? Dost thou love me, Dusty? I I dust. Yeah, Gwalen from Dragon Warrior. Oh, the daughter of the king. Negative. She always always ask the the player, you know, dost thou love me? Be like, dost thou love me, Brian? I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest with you guys. I made the Dragon Warrior analogy because I knew that you both are NES guys. I never had an NES growing up. I was a Sega Master System kid, and therefore. I, I always called it wise, but the East, the 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 East, the vanished omens, um, YS, um, that was my RPG of choice. Fair enough. So I, I but you're wrong. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think the, I think the Master System is a very capable uh, system to have as a kid. You know, I kind of wish I'd had one instead. No, I don't. But I kind of wish I'd had one as well. I love Dragon Warrior. I've played it multiple times. I, I've played uh, through. Um, I've played through Dragon Warrior one, like probably in the last five years. I played through Dragon Warrior two, like in the last three, and I'm actually starting Dragon Warrior three right now. So I, I love that series. But um, yeah, for me, this this um, this game was kind of like comfort food. It's like like my kids, the oldest kid. She says she's picky, but she's picky like a raccoon is picky. It's like she basically eats like food out of a garbage can. You know, just like Vienna sausages and and like real and like cheap like McDonald's uh, chicken nuggets to her. That's like the best food. And I'm like, that's garbage. So um, I'm not going to say this was the most satisfying meal, but it was a nice comfort food meal. It's not garbage. So don't read into that. Um, I would give this overall a seven. I don't think there was like narratively it, it, it wasn't satisfying, but it was fun and it got me what I wanted. And I really needed it. And it was, it was just very satisfying as I played it. No, that's fair. And and to both of your points, I could not play just this. Just this would turn me off very quickly. But I think there's a good reason that we do a dungeon crawl, you know, once every year, or, you know, once every 18 months. I, th- I think we sometimes it's, it's fun to just throw one out there and, and try to make it through. It it flexes a different muscle, right? So maybe a muscle we don't get to use so often where we're we're thinking just about tactics and combat and not, you know, trying to weasel our way out of potential combat encounters through through charm or wit or flaming bedrolls. You know, it's funny you say that. BFRPG actually has this whole mechanic for reaction rolls. And so far the reaction rolls have all been negative, but it's entirely possible that you're gonna come across a friendly orc. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I have been making the reaction rolls. One thing I don't even have in the show notes, both of you guys noticed that I put a screen back up for this game. I'm usually a screenless DM, and I am running this old school style with a screen because there's an awful lot of random generation I'm having to do behind the scenes for the random encounters, for the reaction rolls, for stuff like that. 
um, some of the stealth checks that some thieves that may or may not be around are, are making. So I actually have the screen reinstituted. Um, this will be multiple sessions. I think we'll talk more about the screen in an upcoming episode. But for now, okay, we talked about it to Dungeon Crawl. We, 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 I said, I mean it to be a change of pace. Brian says he's good with it. Mike, you, you've rated the game on its own merits for what it is as a nine. Having said that, is this a good change of pace? Is this something, you know, Brian, you've already answered this, but Mike specifically, do you think we needed this right now? Or is it just me and Brian that needed it? Yeah, I think it was uh, a good change of pace. I think it was definitely something we needed. I think we've been kind of ricocheting back and forth between systems a little bit. And so since we're kind of in that ricochet mode, why not change it up a little bit and and do something a little more uh, uh, tactical and tactile at the same point? So, uh, no, I think it's good for us. So I think it, uh, like I said before, it flexes muscles we hadn't used in a while. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's overall good for us. I, I would not want to stay in this mode for, for too much longer, though. Nor, nor would any of us. We'll finish this one dungeon, and then we'll be done. And actually, Mike, I'll, I'll try to bolster your spirits. There is story to this dungeon. There is a thing that's happening. There is a plot to be uncovered. It's just that right now, you guys in the first you know, 10 rooms, you haven't uncovered any of it yet. So th- th- there is some story here to sink your teeth into. Um, let's talk characters. You guys ran pre-mates. Um, we just got finished talking about what fun it was to roll our World of Dungeons characters. And, and we recently had a revelation that Brian really runs his best characters and does his best role play and is his best self when he rolls the character. Um, but we did totally did pre-mates for this just to get the game moving. I really tried to have just enough on the character sheet to run it um, and let you fill in all the blanks. Did that work or is that approach just too generic to latch onto and to be any fun? I think for, for actual creation of the characters themselves, it's working out just fine. Um, mechanically, at least anyway, uh, my character is simple enough to run. I understand everything that's on the sheet. I feel like I have a, a good grasp on, you know, what, what his abilities and what his utilities are, how he would handle a combat situation. Um, I do think though, you know, kind of, kind of what world of dungeons illuminated for me is that in, in rolling the own character, you really get that chance to, to be and connect with that character. Right. So in, in this dungeon crawl, I'm, you know, I, I'm the mouse inside the robot pushing the buttons to make my robot man, you know, attack and pull levers and do things. There's, there's no uh, character psychological, you know, ambition connection between myself and, and this character. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with the pre-made and then piling the the dungeon crawl on top of it. Right. We, we really haven't had anyone to interact with in that narrative driven way yet. And back to that Battlefield 2 quick combat analogy, you are inhabiting sort of this generic soldier, this generic fighter. Um, so while there is stuff you can do, you are controlling this other this this other thing, this generic thing as you move through the world. Man, we always do video game analogies. Yep. It's what we know. It's what we know. Brian, how about you? What'd you think of the premates? Um so <laughs> I go back to the game episode that we posted a few weeks back 
about having a, a generic system and everything and generic players. I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think the players were generic. I, I liked it. Um, I played what a cleric. I don't know that I've ever played a cleric before. If I have, it's been a long time. It was, it was like, uh, five e or something. So, um, what was Malkior? Malkior Paladin. Paladin. Oh. I think I might have played one in the campaign that we played with Jason, maybe? Or is that Malkior? Oh, so that would have been the last time we played BFRPG. That that sounds almost right, yeah. Yeah, so like it's it's this weird this weird middle ground that I don't quite understand. So it's like it, I didn't have the best time playing a cleric, but again, that's because I don't know that I fully understand the character class so i mean it was, it was it wasn't bad but like i'm just not as comfortable with that as i am with say um like a fighter or man lately i've played a wizard a lot more which was which is kind of weird that i'm actually I actually like playing a, like a full-blown wizard that's an interesting notion so perhaps should have spent some time at least if we're going to keep the generic characters talking about okay you know what's a what, what's what is a cleric? What motivates a cleric? What's a cleric thinking? What's a cleric trying to do in the world? Yeah, in the game, it's uh, when I got there, it was like, well, these characters are left. Which one do you want? And I'm like, I don't care. I probably should, <laughs> I probably should have put more care into that response. Yeah, and we're talking about the game as a, we talk about, and we often do this. We're often guilty of this. We talk about the game as if it exists in this vacuum, and we're trying to always play our best game, but in reality. Um, we were late getting started. You were the last to arrive. Um, we were in a hurry to get started. So us not taking time to introduce everyone to their characters perfectly. You know, we knew we had a hard stop. We knew we had a late start. We were trying to get as much play in as we could and, and deal with the reality of our situation. And I had just gotten there going down a wrong way on a one way street. It, yeah, it was, it was, it was a little frustrating getting there just because uh, I'm not really used to driving in that neighborhood. So um, yeah, pr not probably not the best uh, set of circumstances for uh, the game to start, but I mean, overall I thought it went really well. So starting the actual module off. So let me pause here and say, this is my favorite BFRPG dungeon. I love BFRPG. I actually own all the print books because the print books are so cheap on Amazon. Um, it's so cheap to get all of them. And I've read all the dungeons. And this is my favorite pre-made dungeon crawl, frankly, of any system. Um, the only adventure that I like more than this one as a pre-written adventure is Dusk. And that that is my favorite adventure. I love this dungeon. Um, having said that, the module starts off in town with like rumors and stuff, and you have to decide to go in the dungeon. And the module itself even jokes, it'll be a short adventure if the players decide not to go to the dungeon. So I just skipped all that, and I just flat out told you guys, hey, um, you're going into this dungeon. And we did some prep beforehand, but I, I led with that. Were you okay with that? Or is there a more graceful way to introduce a dungeon crawl? Would you have been happier if I tried to invisibly funnel you toward it? Uh, uh, so I'm split on that answer, right? So I'm hesitating just coming right out and saying yes, because if I say yes, then I'm kind of trouncing on my other previous answer where I wish there was something or someone for my character to interact with. But I'm split on that because it's a dungeon crawl. If you're not in the dungeon, what's the point of a dungeon crawl? I mean, 
Yeah, it, it, it seems weird to me, and I think maybe that's kind of why I don't like dungeon crawls overall. I mean, I know in your regular RPG, if you if you don't eventually do what the GM has planned for you to do for that session, then you kind of kill that session. But with a dungeon crawl, you just kill the whole dungeon. And so what's the point of even really giving the players a choice? You know, it's Do you want to do this dungeon crawl or not? Okay, go to the dungeon, Dubby. Do the dungeon crawl. Uh, yeah, and... Part of it for me, Mike, is respecting the fact that this is meant to be a palate cleanser between campaigns. So if I was turning this into a campaign, I would never hurt your characters like this. I would never just say for your characters, you go to the dungeon. But for a short little palate cleanser between between sessions and we're trying to run a dungeon crawl to run a dungeon crawl, I felt freer to say that. And that brings me to a point. Sorry, Brian, I know you wanted to talk. It brings me to something that just occurred to me, and we have a lot of corporate training where we work. I'm not going to say all of it's valuable. I'll go so far as to say that most of it's not. The value that most of the corporate training provides is that corporate can say they've informed us of the rules so that if we break them, they have every leg to stand on to fire us. That's the point of most corporate training is lawsuit avoidance. Having said that, The corporate training that I did find the most value in and that actually was kind of a revelation to me was a class called situational leadership. And situational leadership basically says, look, you've got three employees, employee A, B, and C. You know, if you were to rank them in your mind, you might have a top employee and and, and an employee who's in the middle who's achieving and then an employee that you're coaching a whole lot. But in reality, that often changes from situation to situation. Employee A isn't always super awesome employee. Employee A is super awesome employee at reporting. And then maybe employee B is super awesome reporting at going out into the field and doing fact finding. And that's when you do cross that's, that's when you do cross training all, all this other stuff. But it really shed light on for me like, oh, wait a minute, they're right. You don't always have a good employee or a bad employee. Um, you don't always have rules where taking the player's agency is okay and isn't okay or railroading is always bad or isn't always bad. It's completely situational. Sometimes you coach in this way. Sometimes you coach in that way. Sometimes you give assignments in this way. Sometimes you give assignments in that way, even with the same group, same players, because the situation's different. Go for it. Dusty, it's situational leadership too. <laughs> that's the advanced course which i think we're in right it's, now it's the ken blanchard version thank you very much you know there is truth there brian i, I often wonder what happened to situational leadership one it's 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 branding yeah you knew that right so it's literally situational leadership two is just branding over situational leadership one to make it sound newer and better yeah, I've heard that. I've also heard there was a lawsuit involved where Ken Blanchard created Situational Leadership One with some other dude. And then when he wanted to start selling it by himself, he had to make a few changes and call it Situational Leadership Two. Yeah, I know that he split off from the other guy. And I thought that the other guy still sold his as one or Situational Leadership and Blanchard is two, which it's kind of it's kind of scummy. But, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. I didn't mean to drop into a traditional leadership lecture, but it did occur to me that, look, not all advice is always good or always bad. So awesome business analogies aside, I think 
this is a really good point where we can look back and see how we've grown as players and GM. Because if this were two or three years ago, we would have absolutely started this dungeon crawl out with you asking, what do you want to go? What do you want to do? How do you want to do this? And we would have killed like 20, 30 minutes, you know, goofing off, joking around, you know, oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to hit the barmaid. And we avoided a lot of that. I think a lot of it was, you know, necessity and we were short on time too. But I think, yeah, situationally, you made the absolute right call. Get us to the dungeon. Yeah, the fun here is in the dungeon. Let's get to the dungeon. Yeah. yeah to yeah, your point earlier. Yeah, for, for me, I remember um, just thinking, I just needed to fix. I'd missed a couple games. And that was, uh, I really needed this to blow off steam. So I was absolutely fine uh, just being, I'm not railroaded because I wasn't railroaded because it wasn't like I went down a path that I didn't have an option. I was just told that, you know, there was no path. <laughs> We're going into the dungeon. And uh, that now, was great. What's your, what's your in the dungeon? What you do is up to you. Exactly. And how, how you approach it's up to you. Exactly. But you're going there. Damn it. All right, we did, after I told you you're going to the dungeon, I did give you a few minutes to do some shopping for a couple of reasons. One, I put the equipment on your character sheet, and I did not want some situation to arise in the dungeon and have you guys be like, well, you gave none of us a rope. (laughs) I could just totally see that happening. So once I told you that we were going into a dungeon crawl, I gave you some time to shop. Now, we usually have an issue with shopping and planning. How do we do this time? I think we did better. We we kept it within a reasonable time frame. We only came up with a couple of ridiculous ideas about trebuchets and mules and stuff like that. But uh, I think overall we did we did better. Um, I think we started getting a little downhill once you like started handing the catalog out, and we each had to you know, take a turn with the catalog and go through it, try to really think of what what could we buy that could break this dungeon. But I think we got away from that pretty quickly this time, whereas in the past we would have totally, you know, spent uh, a good amount of time thinking of what can I buy out of the catalog that will help me break the dungeon. Yeah, I should not have handed over the DM screen that had all the, all the equipment and prices on it. But Nathan had made the point, well, I don't know what there is to buy. And I was like, oh, well, here you go. And then as soon as, I, as soon as his eyes lit up, and Nathan, I know you listen. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The moment his eyes lit up when I handed him that equipment list, I was like, oh, damn it. I knew that I'd messed up. Is there a taco truck on here? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I love Nathan. I love playing with Nathan because he brings this, uh, the taco truck thing to us. And his idea about trebuchets, if you guys had more money, that's a game I want to play. That's a game I absolutely want to play. Like when he, like when he said that, I'm like, oh, can we pull our money? Like how much does this cost? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. All right, so shopping, we we started doing that rabbit hole, but then we all recognized what was going on, and we we all Nathan, everyone just took a step back, and and we got started with the dungeon. So the dungeon map itself, or or maps in general, I actually did make a map but I made it at half the usual scale. Usually one inch is five feet. This time a half inch was five feet. I did it on this ghost line poster board 
which I love. It has this, this, you know, really light gray grid with half inch squares on it. So I used the half inch squares to be five feet. And I did the whole dungeon on two sheets of poster board. And we literally used an aquarium stone just to represent what room the group was in. And that's how we did maps this time. Sort of a middle ground between, you know, completely tactical one inch equals five feet. And we're moving four minis sort of a middle ground between that and totally theater of the mind where maybe you guys get lost in, Hey, where the hell are we? This compromise, Brian, you love the grid. And yeah. we did sort of have one for overland movement, but not for move by move combat. Was this weak T or a good compromise? It was kind of weak T to be honest. Um, because we weren't really using it tactically so much other than just, we were a little bit, but I kind of lost track of where things were. And, and I, I, I wasn't even paying attention to where we were on the grid half the time. It wasn't relevant for combat. I think the only time that there was ever really any need to know where we were was when there was like um, a window between two rooms. Um, and I mean, really, it just didn't. It other than directionally knowing where we were within the um, within the dungeon, I don't think it mattered that much. So better than nothing, or nothing would have been just as good. In this case, I think nothing would have been just as good. Hmm. Mike, what do you think? So I'm actually going to disagree with Brian on that, and that's kind of a change. Um, so I think this worked out well for what we were doing because it basically became a visual checklist of here's where you are in the dungeon, here's where you are in the progression of the dungeon. This is going to help you ask a bunch of keep from asking a bunch of questions of where do we go next? Where do we go next? Where do we go next? Right. So you you need something so your your players take that agency to say, oh, well, I'll go to this room, I go to this room. Um and it, it, it totally was not detailed enough for me to do any of my usual on-the-map metagaming, right? So there there weren't the obvious, you know, two columns of three statues lined up. It's like, oh, that's probably a trap. There wasn't there wasn't enough detail on there for me to to try and suss out anything that uh, that might be a, a trap-wise or a monster-wise or puzzle. Um, so I, I personally felt it was a good balance, and I, I thought it was a good tool of just helping keep track of the dungeon and keep the game moving. I'm glad you, that that was the that was completely the intent. My greatest fear, Brian, is that if I had nothing, I'd wind up describing every room in exhaustive detail and then answering the same questions like three times per, in the same room for I, every room. I to I totally get why. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with what Mike says about having it as a uh, good um, like point of like relationship between you know where we are. But as a GM, I mean, sometimes things may be transparent to me, but they may have be may be of great value and and utility to you. I mean, do it. Oh sure, and I don't plan to not do it. Um, and if there's anything that we've learned about each other, it's that we all enjoy variety in our games. So we are totally going to be back on the grid at some point doing tactical combat because I'm going to get tired of not doing that and I'm going to want to do it for a while. So we do, we do oscillate. And I think it's a healthy thing. Here's a big question about the map. We played the entire session. We finished up. I felt like at the end of the session, we hadn't, um, 
we hadn't made any story progress. You guys had had a bunch of combats, you know, six combats, you had a bunch of random encounters. You were in the dungeon, you know, you were getting confident with your characters. We made some good progress there, but because we hadn't had any story process, or sorry, progress, I wasn't sure you were hooked. So I suddenly pulled out my black light flashlight and I quickly flashed it over the dungeon as we were packing up to say, and you guys didn't even find any of the secret rooms. And I suddenly showed that in blacklight reactive marker, I had drawn secret rooms that you can't see with the naked eye on the map as sort of a teaser to, to have you be excited about the next session. Was it okay that I teased it or would it have been more impactful if I would have waited for you to actually find a secret room? It was totally awesome that you revealed that. I absolutely uh, appreciate that you did that because it's it really adds um, a sense of excitement for the for the next game. Not that I wasn't excited, but it gives me something to look forward to and to try to figure out how to um, navigate, you know, our way into those secret rooms and figure out how in the heck, you know, we're going to uh, how to do it. And I really don't want to meta game by bringing my own um, UV flashlight, <laughs> but I may bring my own UV flashlight. That's not metagaming. That's just cheating. There's a lie. Yeah. There's a if line I take, there. well, I mean, I did leave the maps at Nathan's house, and Nathan already showed me that he has his own UV flashlight. So who knows? You know, if he suspiciously finds an awful lot of secret doors next session, I will. I will raise some eyebrows at that. Dude, so I have a new. I have a prescription. I should have tomorrow or Wednesday. Uh, it, the lens that lets you see into the ultraviolet range. They're, they're, they're polarized. Maybe, maybe that'll help me see. You know, like I, I don't necessarily have to see into the UV, uh, but I, you know, if it could help me see like where you know there's ink or that the texture of the uh, of the paper is a little bit modified because there's something over it. You know, who knows? Never mind. I'll shut up, dude. If you were classic. Marvel Comics Daredevil, you can just run your fingers over the map and feel which sections of paper had ink and which didn't. Well, I mean, so he, so I think a normal person can feel where there's ink. What he could do is read. So he can mm. actually read based on the, the ink. I, I can't do that, but I bet if I rub my fingers over it, I probably could feel the ink. How about you, Mike? Was the secret room tease okay or more impactful if I waited? So I love it and I hate it. All at the same time. So I love that you did this awesome thing with the UV light and secret rooms on a map. I absolutely hate now that I know that this damn dungeon is filled with a ton of secret rooms. And I'm going to be going wall by wall, poking the walls until I find the entrances to those secret rooms. It's not Wolfenstein. That won't work. It's absolutely. It's everything is always Wolfenstein when there's secret rooms. <laughs> I remember. In the early days of Wolfenstein, literally holding down the space bar and strafing across walls. Yep. Just randomly looking for secret rooms. So All yeah, right. That's that's how I feel about it. So you love it and you hate <laughs> it. Fair enough. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, this is my favorite dungeon crawl of any system. I love it. It's free. Go check it out. It's a super fun dungeon. Um, there are a lot of things I love about it, but... I really studied the box text. I often talk about on this show how I don't do a great job of running pre-made adventures. I just don't. And I was determined to overcome that. So I studied the crap out of this adventure. I took the book with me. 
I read it at various places. When we went on a car trip and Susan drove, I was reading this adventure. That's not an exaggeration. I studied the box text. I really wanted to be able to read the box text to you with speed and emotion. And if you ask me questions, I wanted to be able to answer them largely from my head and not from the text. I wanted this to be, feel really seamless. Did it feel seamless like I was making it up like it, like like a dungeon that I had created? Or did it feel like I was reading? Did it still show through that this is an out-of-the-box adventure? I'd say it felt seamless to me, right? So so now that I know that you spent all this time studying it, it makes a little more sense because I was I was really impressed of just how easily you were going from room to room with the descriptions of the room and not sounding like you're reading, right? I was like, is there is there like some sort of like piecemeal thing he's using to come up with each of these rooms? But now that I know that you've just studied the crap out of it, that makes a lot of sense. Brian thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's in my mindset going in because the game that we played was not heavy on role play. It was heavy on, um, you know, just going in, looking around and, uh, I guess tactics in my mind, a game with a lot of prep, a game that you put a lot of effort into is probably in my, it's a bias of mine, but I think that I think, I think of it in terms of story more so than um, how fluid um, the actual uh, play is. But in reality, it, I mean, just, again, it's one of those things that's transparent to me. It's like, it's like watching a movie, a really good movie, tends to be really seamless really good special effects tends to seamlessly transition from you know conventional effects actors to cg and it's it's almost it's almost invisible because you don't even you don't even recognize how uh masterfully it's done so in hindsight i'm like yeah that makes perfect sense that you you know you're very familiar with the uh with what was in the game but at the time i was really just mostly interested in you know breaking and killing things and you know looking for stuff so i it, it it didn't register when playing how intimately familiar you were but as we have this conversation it it makes perfect sense it's fair the lesson that i would bring to life for other gms you know if you're great at running adventures out of the box then great you don't you don't need this lesson i'm about to give if you're like me and you struggle the key for me is run adventures that you really love what sucks about that is how many adventures you have to go through before you find one that you love. So, you know, find a source of free adventures, check out bundleofholding.com, check out humblebundle.com because they do RPG stuff a fair amount of time, you know, find a way to get a lot of adventures for real cheap. Um, that way you can go through a bunch and find the ones that you really fall in love with. I'm in love with this one. So all the studying that I did was a pleasure and a joy with a lot of dungeons. I hate to say it, even with these fifth edition, you know, massive dungeon books that come out, you know, one or two per year, Storm King's Thunder, Castle Ravenloft, um, even with those, I don't love them. I don't love them as much as I love this. So find an adventure that you love and, and the work to prepare it won't be a big deal. Let's talk combat. Holy God, combat was fast. We started late. We had a hard stop. We had like six combats and a little over an hour of playtime. A little over an hour. That's 
amazing. We never do that. Did you enjoy those combats? Yes. Expand on that. I I really don't know how, right? I, it's just that the, the combat was fast. The combat was fun. I will say I don't really remember felt like being threatened, like, like in too much of a danger, but that's probably because I simply didn't get hit in any of that combat. Um, I think Chris may say differently because he had an encounter with slime that didn't go so great. And he maybe felt a little vulnerable after that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fast, fluid, simple combat. One of the opening, in fact, the opening combat, the first combat was when you guys were lifting up the portcullis and making all that noise. And the adventure directs you to, you know, make a random encounter roll when that, occurs and i did and i rolled a single solitary orc which i portrayed no sorry it was the bugbear and then an orc so the, the orc was second when the orc came running down the corridor at you guys and nathan the ranger took aim and one-shotted that orc that's when it got real for me like whoa you know number one that felt narratively realistic it doesn't make sense that you're going to have this thing that can take like 15 arrows and, you know, four sword wounds and a mace wound and an axe wound and a fireball spell before it finally goes down to have a living thing running down a corridor at you screaming. And the ranger calmly puts an arrow through its eye socket and drops it in one hit. That felt fun. And it really shows how few hit points you guys have in comparison with how much damage a lot of the weapons do. So I, that was a big moment for me. And the, the rest of the combats were very similar. There was a lot of one-shotting going on, which felt real to me. It felt fun. It felt honest. Um, I, thought that was, I thought that was really neat. Brian, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, and it just it, it felt good, again, because I'd missed a couple games in the last th get last game that we had played uh that I'd played was our last ETU game and that game and that um campaign had a lot of like complex emotions in it it was really great just playing a game where we got to kill stuff lord of the ring style and i also like playing i also like playing a game where you do have so few hit points because it just makes it just raises the stakes and I remember the last time we played. How long has it been since we've played BFRPG? It's been years. Yeah, and I mean that that was a pretty fatal system for us, was it not? I mean, we had didn't we have a couple of deaths or at least one major death that just. Well, so BFRPG when we played it, I made a couple of mistakes, which I corrected this time. It didn't even make the show notes, so I'm glad you asked this question. Actually, um, before what I did was I made I moved you all over. You were level seven yeah. in fourth edition, and I made you all level seven. And BFRPG, not realizing or not thinking about the fact that BFRPG in fourth edition, when you hit a thousand hit points, you're level two, regardless of your class. And BFRPG, if you're 2000 hit points, well, depending, or sorry, 2000 experience points, depending on your class, sometimes it's level two, sometimes it's not quite level two yet. So they, I should have moved your experience points over. And the real casualty of that was Chris. Chris was playing the rogue who levels up the fastest. So really a level seven rogue is more than a couple of steps behind a, a level seven fighter. I sh he should have been a level eight or maybe even a level nine 
rogue. Um, I did that this time. This time, the thief is one level higher than you guys. So Chris is running a level four thief, and you're all running level threes, which is true with the experience points. Basically, what I did is instead of making you all the same level, I gave everyone 5,000 experience points, which started most of you at level three, and it started him at level at level uh, four. To answer your question, Brian, about whether or not BFRPG was lethal, for, lethal to us, it was for Chris. Yeah. But it wasn't really, yeah. But it wasn't for everyone else because BFRPG is the system where I let Jason play that homebrew necromancer. Oh, and that that thing just it just I made a bunch of mistakes when I ran BFRPG a couple of years ago. So for me, this is also a chance to take the system that I love and get it right this time. And I I really think you are. And it was the combat was really satisfying. It was very satisfying. In fact, Um, I think that. If we have like a battle where things are really tight and, you know, uh, it's, I, I think if we have a really tight combat coming up, it, it'll be a good chance to uh, like smoke test this. Um, but I mean, as of right now, as we have made our way into the dungeon, it's just been a lot of fun just killing things. It's been great. Awesome. So we have more sessions to go. We probably have. I think at least two more sessions of this dungeon crawl. Um, I won't want to do them weeks apart. We'll play the next one. In fact, this coming Thursday, and then we'll try to uh, get it in the books to, to finish it up here soon. Cause I, I want to, I'm loving this. I'm having fun with it. Just like you guys, I don't want to play it on and on and on. So this needs to be three sessions and we'll figure out a way to make it three sessions um, at the most. What lessons have we learned as we've talked today. So for me, a big one was the situational advice and, you know, what's okay for the GM sometimes is not okay. Other times and vice versa. So I railroaded you guys to get you into the dungeon because that's where the fun was. So if you take a step back and say the GM's role is to facilitate the fun, I followed that rule. Even if I took away a little bit of player agency, you know, I felt like we had a mature enough relationship for me to do that what other lessons have we uncovered as we talked i really like the lesson that that you kind of came up with in the conversation that wasn't in the show notes of uh you know when when you study a dungeon you genuinely enjoy it 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 makes it a pleasure right it it makes bring bringing that game together for your entire crew uh, a passion rather than you know maybe potentially a burden and uh i think you know for for a GM, that's a big deal, right? So if you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out dungeons you want to run for your guys, find one you really like, and that makes it a lot easier. So Brian? for me, um, so we'd had the conversation before about how you had uh, not leveled the characters um, correctly for the last time we played this. and But the thing is, you haven't like harped on it you haven't beat it into the ground it wasn't on the forefront of our our, of our consciousness when playing this game so it wasn't i wasn't really thinking about how the last time we played this it didn't go as well as it could have and the fact that we had i think such a great experience with this first game uh shows that you really can go back and uh i i I think redemption is too like dramatic (laughs) of a word but you really can redeem um you can not necessarily yourself as the GM, but I think as a system in our minds, which tells me that I think we could probably go back and play Savage Worlds again. I was about to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I think now that we've had our one experience with Savage Worlds, you know, we'll break from it for a while, we'll let it process, and then maybe we'll come back and try it around a physical table in person. Yes, I would love that. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's RPG Lessons Learned this week. Thank you so much for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them Lessons Learned, and we're sharing ours with you.